Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we're thankful today that though you have a universe to take care of, you're mindful of us on this Sabbath day. We recognize, Lord, as we open your word that Paul called it the foolishness of preaching. We pray for the Holy Spirit to join us, to manifest himself to us, to hit our minds this morning with truth. And when you do, help us to submit to it because that's the only way. It's the only way to peace and joy. So we pray for Heaven's Spirit to join us, to um, open the Bible to us, to help us understand today. And please give me wisdom and please use me. In Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago after the midterm elections, when I was told about a pastoral conference that was held the Thursday after the midterm election with a former Speaker of the House, I believe his name was Newt Gingrich, and a, a historian, a Christian historian in America called David Barton. And as I listened to those two men talk on that um, conference call that morning, they were just elated by the fact that um, all of the politicians that were elected into office in November, that they were all very devout Christians. And that just thrilled them, just thrilled them. And as I listened to them very, very uh, closely, I recognized how, how easy, how easy it would be to simply cross a line where it's no longer polit politics on one side of a fence and religion and church on the other side and how easy it would be for them to mesh them together and to have a church and state all over again. And I began to pull out all the books I had and I was amazed at how many I actually had. I have four different books uh, that talk about the church and state through history, through time, in America and in the past. And as, as Americans, we have no idea. We have no idea. Uh, what it means to have the church and the state so united together that the state would enforce church doctrine. We just have no clue. Because we've lived our lives in a climate where the church and state have been apart. But folk, as I listened to those two men, I recognized how quickly they are meshing themselves together. So what I decided to do was to put together a series on the history of church and state through scripture and through time. 
So we're going to look at that for several weeks when I am here. And this is going to be Church and State Part 1. Sweetie, let's take a look. Render to Caesar. Some religious bigots came to Christ one day, hoping to trap him with a question that truly perplexed them, for which they felt there was no real answer. All their lives, they had been taught that the church and the state were one. That's how they'd been taught. But in the case of Caesar, these men came to Christ that day in Luke chapter 20, and they asked a question. Sweetie, let's read the question. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. If you forget everything else we look at today, don't forget this passage. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. The passage says, They watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. You know, isn't that interesting? What it's saying there is that Christ was not politically correct. He said what was true, whether it made somebody happy or whether it made them sad, whether they went away joyful or whether they went away furious, Christ taught the way of God truly. That has got to be the greatest thing that somebody could say about somebody speaking on God's behalf. They asked him, is it lawful for us to give tribute or tax to Caesar or no? Now throughout the life of Israel, people had been taught that the king and God were one. The king and God were one. So these Jews, when they came to Christ, they figured that they had him because if he said, well, of course you pay to Caesar a tax, you give to him his just desserts, then these men would run to the authorities and say, see, he has rejected the law of God. He's putting a man in place of God, ahead of God, and he's saying we can give him our monies. Oh, but if, they, if he says, well, no, you don't have to pay to Caesar, you don't have to pay anything to him and give him any support at all, well, then they could run to the authorities and say, see, we don't have to honor the government, and then Christ could be charged with insurrection against the Roman authority. So they said, no matter how he answers, we've got him by the throat. Well, it says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you tempt me? Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. So Christ said, does the authority of the Romans, is there to be any support given to them? 
Christ said, absolutely there is. What is to be rendered to those that are in control of the state, which they lawfully ask you to give, you honor that. And then Christ said, but you also honor your Father in heaven. He said, you give to Caesar what Caesar asks, you give to God what he asks. So Christ answered the question in the most simple manner, but one that profounded and perplexed those people. Next slide. From Desire of Ages, we read this commentary on these verses. The spies had expected Jesus to answer their question directly in one way or the other. If he should say it's unlawful to give tribute to Caesar, he would be reported to the Roman authorities and arrested for inciting rebellion. But in case he should pronounce it lawful to pay the tribute or the tax, they designed to accuse him to the people as opposing the law of God. Now they felt themselves baffled and defeated. Their plans were disarranged. The summary manner in which their question had been settled left them nothing further to say. Christ's reply was no evasion, but a candid answer to the question. Holding in his hand the Roman coin upon which were stamped the name and image of Caesar, Christ declared that since they were living under the protection of the Roman power, they should render to that power the support it claimed, so long as it did not conflict with a higher duty. But while peaceably subject to the laws of the land, they should at all times give their first allegiance to God. Next slide. The Savior's words, render unto God the things that are God's, were a severe rebuke to the intriguing Jews. Had they faithfully fulfilled their obligations to God, they would not have become a broken nation subject to a foreign power. No Roman ensign would have waved over Jerusalem. No Roman sentinel would have stood at her gates. No Roman governor would have ruled within her walls. The Jewish nation was then paying the penalty of its apostasy from God. When the Pharisees heard Christ's answer, they marveled. They marveled and left him and went their way. He had rebuked their hypocrisy and presumption. And in doing this, he had stated a great principle. A great principle. A principle that clearly defines the limits of man's duty to the civil government and his duty to God. In many minds, a vexed question had been settled. Ever after, they held to the right principle. And although many went away dissatisfied, they saw that the principle underlying the question had been clearly set forth, and they marveled at Christ's far-seeing discernment. What had Christ done with his answer? He had split the two entities and separated them forever in the mind of a Christian. The, the state is owed certain allegiance. But 
as, as long as the state stays within the political arena, everything's fine. And they owe, they are owed respect. They are owed honor, as First Peter chapter 2 says. And God is owed our first allegiance. And as long as the two remain separate, everything works out just fine. Next slide. How could a man be loyal to the state by paying taxes and at the same time be showing disloyalty to God? The Seventh-day Adventists of the first century believed that the church and state were one and could not be separate. Christ spoke immortal truth, declaring man's duty to government and civil things and man's duty to his maker in spiritual things. As long as we maintain that clarity, everything is fine. But you see, throughout history, the two have always been joined together, the church and the state. Next slide, sweetie. Here is man's duty to his maker. Right here. On the first table of the law of God, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 11. And on these four commandments, no government can ever legislate the first table of God's law. Because the first table of God's law identifies man's duty and allegiance to his maker. Exodus 20, starting with verse 3, declares, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. There we have outlined in the first table of God's law man's duty to his maker. And no king, government, political entity can ever come in and seek to legislate the first table of the law. When a government seeks to legislate any of the first table of the Ten Commandments, they have crossed the line. They have usurped authority that does not belong 
to them. Next slide, sweetie. Yes, ma'am. Go back, sweetie. What I understand, Louise, that's the second commandment. What this commandment is talking about in general, Louise, is what you have at the plains of Dura. Nebuchadnezzar set up an image, the golden statue, and he told the people to bow down to it. See, Nebuchadnezzar had no right as a king, as a person, to come in between those people on the plains of Dura and to tell them how or what to worship. So that's what the commandment is forbidding. My understanding of a likeness uh, above or in the earth beneath, Louise, is, is us carving out something that's like the deity and then worshiping that. Like a statue that you find in churches. Yes. <clears throat> well, you know, some people... And the question is, well, how about photos or pictures? Well, let's take an example. Let's say, well, we have this, this picture uh, of a high priest. Okay? Now, if I'm going over to this statue of the high priest and what he looked like, and, and we can say that's Christ as our great high priest, if I'm going over and I'm bowing before it, I've made it an image. I've made it an idol. And, and now I've made a likeness. Then I would be disobeying the second commandment. You see the point? Same with a picture. If I have a picture of, of Jesus in my home. And I go over on a daily basis or every now and then. And I bow down to that picture. Well, I have... That's a likeness of Jesus Christ and now I'm bowing before that likeness I've made that an image or an idol okay to actually have a picture of Christ in my home or here in the church I don't see anything wrong with that but it's what I do with it then you have a problem as far as Nellie said, we really don't know what Christ looked like. Um, for the most part, Nellie, we don't. I know there is a statement and there is a picture. Um, when I was doing the evangelistic series many years ago on the Three Angels Messages for Television, there was one picture that was brought to me with a quote from Ellen White where she said, this picture of Christ 
is the closest likeness that she saw of any picture here on earth that represented what she saw of Christ in vision. Yeah. So, Fernando? Absolutely. And that, Fernando, connects with the second commandment. Absolutely. That we don't bow down to a, a, a statue or a picture. We bow down to the unseen God. Excellent point. Appreciate the question. If somebody else has one along the lines of what we're studying, please feel free. Uh, now, here's the second table of the law. This, this second table of the law, government is to legislate. Because this is our duty to our fellow man. And if we're not doing what we should be towards our fellow man, then it's government's right and duty to step in and say, you need to be following this. Or there's going to be consequences. Now that's government's right to do that. Here's the second table of the law that government is to legislate. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now that's not just respect for parents. That's respect for authority. Authority. Okay? So we need to be respectful of authority. And if we're not respectful of authority, government has every right to step in. Every right to step in and say, because you're being disrespectful to authority or to, to you know, to things, to a store, to whatever it is, if we're not respectful, government has the right to step in and punish for that. Thou shall not kill. So if somebody's out killing somebody else, Government needs to step in and arrest the person. Legislate that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Nor his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his ass or anything that is thy neighbor's. This is government's this is government's duty right here is to legislate the second table of the law, which is man's duty to man. All right, sweetie, next slide. Now, a theocracy. We've never lived under a theocracy, have we? We don't know what that is. Well, we know from the Old Testament because Israel back at that time was a theocracy. What is a theocracy? That just simply means that God was the king in both civil and religious matters. His will and purposes were made known through the voice of his prophets. So while there was a living prophet God spoke through that prophet, whether it be Moses or Joshua or one of the others through Samuel, 
and he showed to his people both his political will as well as his religious will. That was a theocracy. He was the sole voice in civil matters and he was the object of their worship. However, as people departed from God and the voice of the prophet was no longer desired, the clear duties to government and to God became very cloudy and undefined. Let's take a look at a few examples from the Old Testament to when the duty to God and the duty to government became very, very unclear. Next slide, sweetie. Foggy lines in the days of David and Saul. Should the men of Israel obey the king when he tells them to kill the priests of Nob? Should they have done that? Should they have killed Ahimelech and, and all the other priests of Nob in the days of Saul? Of course not. So why was it, fortunately enough, the people didn't kill the priests of Nob and Saul, do you remember who Saul turned to to kill the priests in Nob? Who was it? Doeg. That's right. And who was Doeg, Reggie? He was an Edomite. That's right. He was a heathen. He was a foreigner. And that's why Doeg would kill the priests when the Israelites would not. 1 Samuel 22, 7. The king said to the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord. How could Saul, how could he demand those men to do such a thing? Why? Because Saul thought he was not only king, he thought he was God. That's right. That's right. So he said, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. So God's people were clear on what Saul could dictate and what he couldn't. In the case of David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, what about Joab? David sent a letter back with Uriah and said, put Uriah out in the forefront of the battle right up there where the Ammonite strong men are and withdraw from him. And Joab did exactly that, didn't he? Why? Because Joab was foggy. He didn't see where the king's duties lay and where they didn't lay. And so it says it came to pass when Joab observed the city, he assigned Uriah a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. So it was confused. It was foggy lines. They weren't sure because they did not have a definite answer from the Lord through his prophet. So when the king made an order, and sometimes there was confusion, sometimes there wasn't. Next slide, sweetie. 
A sacral mindset. What's sacral? Sacralism. What is that? Well, in heathen lands, the king was God in civil and in religious matters. Whatever the king said, as far as politics and as far as religion, that was the law. Whatever the king demanded in worship or otherwise had to be obeyed. Each king or pharaoh would select their deity or their god, and all of society was bound together by their reverence of the king's deity. Everyone became one in their religious devotion. The society was held together by a common religion to which all the members of society were committed. The common people had no choice. They had no choice. It was obey and live or disobey and die. Now, have we ever lived in a society like that? See, I've never lived in a place like that. Because I'm free to worship God the way I want to. I can go to church when I want to. Or I cannot go to church when I want to. Now in the early days when the colonies were established, they became tyrants themselves. For example, Roger Williams, which quote many times, was actually left for dead by the, uh, the brethren of uh, Massachusetts colony. Very good point Arsenio's making. Arsenio said that in the United States in the colonial times that the early colonists, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, they had a society just like this. That was their society. And then a man came along by the name of Roger Williams that we'll study about over time. But Roger Williams, folk, is the reason why you and I have the freedom we have today. He is the reason why. And Roger Williams understood the fact that the church and state had to be separate. But back in ancient times, in the Old Testament, it was not that way. It was not that way. The church and state were together. They were bound together. And whatever the king said in civil matters as well as in religious matters had to be obeyed. And if it wasn't, the people would die. It's that simple. Next slide, sweetie. We're going to run into this word quite often. Sacralism. The sacral way. Sacralism is simply when everybody in a society is bound together by their belief in one God. That's a sacral society. And everybody is forced to worship that deity the way the king says. Nebuchadnezzar was the God king in Babylon. His word was law. All society was bound together by whatever the king desired to worship. He decreed the worship of a gigantic statue and almost everyone obeyed. For those who didn't, the flames. That's a sacral society. Everybody was 
zeroed in on one deity. And everybody was to honor that deity. That's a sacral society. Daniel chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 discusses it. A herald cried aloud to you, it's commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dusselmer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Next slide. Why did the three young men say no? Why did they refuse to worship? Nebuchadnezzar was the God King. Because they were honoring the one God. Okay? You see, the three young men, which commandment was Nebuchadnezzar in setting up the statue on the plains of Dura? Was he commanding something on the second table of the law? to honor authority, to not kill, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear. Was he? Which commandment was Nebuchadnezzar disobeying? It was on the first table and the second commandment. Because Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image and he said, you've got to bow down to this image. And the three young men understood very, very clearly government cannot legislate the first table of the law. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. So the three young men said no. They said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. The form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. You know, in the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says that the reason Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated seven times hotter was because he had a thought in his mind that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to, would intervene on their behalf. So he thought if he heated it seven times hotter that he might able to kill them. This is how sacral society works. The God King decrees and everyone obeys. The three Hebrew young men understood clearly their duties to the King and to their God. In civil matters, 
They were willing and obedient subjects of the king. They understood that. They had an, an obligation. They had an obligation in civil matters to Nebuchadnezzar. Just as we have obligations in civil matters to our government. In religious matters, God alone was to be obeyed. The king had crossed the line and nothing, not even the flames, could get the young men to change their minds. The line had been drawn, violations had occurred, and they would not budge. As long as government and kings and rulers stay with the second table of the law, they are to be obeyed. When government crosses that line, as Nebuchadnezzar did on the plains of Dura, and tries to legislate the first table of the law, Nebuchadnezzar went too far. Then the king is to be disobeyed. Next slide. How about in the first century? This is the Greek or the goddess of Asia. Her name was Diana. Acts 19, 24-28. Notice, this was a sacral society. It says a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain to the craftsmen whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised. And her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You see, folk, all the people of Ephesus, with one accord, were worshipping this goddess. She was the single object of their worship and of their religion. That's a sacral society. Now, what was the real reason why Demetrius was upset because Diana was not being worshipped? Why was it? Because his business, his trade, it was money, it was purely economics. That's what it was. All had to do with the fact that he was making these silver shrines of this goddess. And when Paul started preaching, he started to lose money. And that's why he said, we've got to get people focused back on the great Diana of the Ephesians. Next slide. A sacral society. Demetrius and the silversmiths made big money off of this heathen vestal. 
The one object of worship in Ephesus and throughout the Asian world was Diana. She was the center, the sum and substance of Ephesian worship and everyone was to conform. All Ephesus was bound together in their devotion to her. I want you to remember this word. This is a sacral society. When the religion and the government join together and make one object the center of worship, that is a sacral society. This was the mindset of the ancient world. Those who didn't obey were in trouble. Acts 19.34 and 35 says, When they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Next slide. Roman society, exactly the same. Persecution over religious belief is always the ultimate result of a sacral society. Everyone is expected to follow the king or the government's word and honor his deity. The Roman Empire had an object of worship. Everyone was to conform. Interestingly enough, the primitive church had their supreme object of worship as well. The man Christ Jesus. However, the early church never fought for the exaltation of their deity, even though he was the right one. True Christianity never seeks to compel by force the worship of another. Yes, Nellie. Yes. The thing, Nellie, see, the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 to 7, um, that's talking about the church of Ephesus literally in John's day. It's also, of course, Nellie, talking about the first century church from the time of Christ up to the end of the first century. But yeah, it's the same church. Same church. However, the church of Ephesus, Nellie, that would have been the Christian church. And uh, the church there in Ephesus that Paul raised up had left its first love and had gone after false doctrine. Uh, whereas the church of, of Ephesus that we find in Acts 19, uh, those were obviously heathen peoples that had no connection with the Christian church. All right, next slide, sweetie. In the first century, Domitian, the Roman Empire, was the God-King. Domitian adopted an autocratic style coupled with what might be regarded as egomaniacal behavior. Having himself referred to as Dominus et Dios, 
which means Master and God, renaming the month of September to Germanicus to commemorate his supposed military victories and renaming October to, to Domitianus was a constant reminder the, to the rest of Rome that the eternal city was not a veiled republic, but truly was an empire at the whims of a single man. So Domitian from 81 to 96 in the Roman Empire claimed himself God and King in all civil and religious matters. As a result, this man, John the Revelator, was cast into a cauldron or a pot of boiling oil. Why? Because John would not worship the God-King Domitian. Next slide. <clears throat> the Emperor Domitian, Acts of the Apostles tells us, was filled with rage. He could neither dispute the reasoning of Christ's faithful advocate nor match the power that attended his utterance of truth. Yet he determined that he, he would silence his voice. John was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil, but the Lord preserved the life of his faithful servant even as he preserved the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. As the words were spoken, thus perish all who believe in that deceiver, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. John declared, My master patiently submitted to all that Satan and his angels could devise to humiliate and torture him. He gave his life to save the world. I am honored in being permitted to suffer for his sake. I am a weak, sinful man. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Next slide. The war raged in the early Christian church for three centuries. A sacral Roman society squared off with apostolic Christianity. You see, the, the two could not coexist because Roman society was sacral. It said everybody has to worship one deity and the whole empire is bound by the worship of that one deity. But the apostolic church said, we will not fight you, we will not antagonize or you know, try to destroy your deity but we will quietly worship our own. And with that mindset, the same mindset that made Christ say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Apostolic Christianity grew and prospered as adherents came into the church by the thousands. The blood of the Christians was seed since sacralism could not be used to destroy the early church, the devil created something new, something startling, something still with us today. Does anybody know what this man's name is? No, that's a good try. I'll give you a hint. This man came in after the first three centuries of the Christian era. 
And he said, you know what? We can't stop the Christian church. That's right. This is Constantine. Yes. Next slide. We'll close with this slide. Great controversy, 49 and 50. Little by little, at first in stealth and silence, then more openly as it increased in strength and gained control of the minds of men, the mystery of iniquity carried forward its deceptive and blasphemous work. Almost imperceptibly, the customs of heathenism found their way into the Christian church. The spirit of compromise and conformity was restrained for a time by the fierce persecutions which the church endured under paganism. But as persecution ceased and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, she laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers. And in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and traditions. The nominal conversion of Constantine in the early part of the 4th century caused great rejoicing and the world, cloaked with a form of righteousness, walked in to the church. You see, folk, Christ set down a principle in Luke 20 and Constantine tried to flip it and that's what we're going to be looking at, God willing, next Sabbath, is how Constantine created a sacral society where the church and the state became one. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this study today. Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us to render to Caesar what is rightfully his. Help us to understand our responsibilities to civil authority and help us to honor it as long as it stays within its realm of civil things on the second table of your law. Father, help us, I pray, to always be able to discern our utter and total allegiance to you in religious things. Father, I pray that you'd give us discernment each and every day to always maintain in our minds, the clear distinction that needs to exist between the separation of the church and the state. Please strengthen us to honor you and to honor the government in civil things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.